Hello and welcome to episode 124 of the CogniCast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. This week, Stuart Sierra talks with Michael Dragalis. But before we get started, we do have a few announcements. First, the Boston Closure Group will be meeting on Thursday, May 11th at 6.30 at the Akamai offices to hear Tom Kidd talk about his first closure project, Web Whiteboard. Have a look at meetup.com slash boston closure group for more information. Second, the Prague Lambda Meetup is happening on Thursday, May 4th at 6.45. Go to meetup.com slash lambda-meetup-group for more information about that. And finally, sponsorship opportunities are still available for Euroclosure, which is happening on July 20th and 21st in Berlin. Go to 2017, that's the digits, 2017.euroclosure.org slash sponsorship for more information about that. So if you have a closure-related event you'd like us to mention, please drop us a line at podcast at cognitech.com. Well, that's about it. So on the Stuart Sierra and Michael Dragalis in episode 124 of the CogniCast. Ready to go. Okay, let's do it. <clears throat> Hello, everyone. Today is April 21st, 2017, and this is the Cognicast. I'm Stuart Sierra, and I'm here with Mike Dragalis, and we're happy to have him on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, you were just, uh, you're just recently back from uh, Closure West a few weeks ago, right? In, in I am, yeah. Yep, great conference. Yeah, I'm sorry I missed that one. It uh, looked like there were uh, a lot of good talks, including yours, which we'll get to. But uh, you've been on the show before, uh, a couple years ago, I think. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so you probably uh, know that we have a standard question that we ask all of our guests, and that is to describe some experience of art that you found interesting, whatever that means to you. Sure. I have uh, actually one very favorite photograph that's sort of hung around with me through the years. I've, I've kind of kept it as my background for, I don't know, three or four years now. Uh, the title is uh, Casual 4 a.m. Walks, and uh, it's it's a photograph of a woman walking along the side of a road. Uh, it, it's uh, you know a little unintuitive. She's just kind of holding a briefcase um, and also balloons in the same hand, and it's sort of it's almost <laughs> a metaphorical picture about like you know business and remembering to just relax too, even if you're sort of stranded in the middle of a road in the middle of nowhere. And uh, that message has always stuck with me when I'm having a creative drought. Uh, so it's been good to have, have a glance at that every time. Uh, I feel like I could... When in doubt, carry balloons in your briefcase. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, everyone <laughs> likes balloons. Sure. I, I, now that I'm thinking, I was watching your, uh, your Closure West talk online, and I think I saw that picture on your desktop background <laughs> at one point when you switched windows. So That's I've funny. actually seen it, and yes, it is a cool photo. Thank you. Well, great. So uh, we have lots of stuff to talk about since uh, you're always doing uh, interesting stuff. Last time, I think you were talking about uh, Onyx, uh, and that's been uh, continuing. It seems like uh, a really cool project. 
Uh, but you have a new thing, uh, I believe, based on your Closure West talk. That's right. Um, I'm now working on a, a commercial product named uh, Pyroclast, which is really an extension of Onyx. Um, and, and Pyroclast really aims to deliver on the promise that we started with Onyx, which was to um, make it easier to understand distributed systems and specifically uh, distributed streaming. The hardest problems that we deal with on a daily basis are understanding what our programs are actually doing. Uh, we're getting better at, at tuning things automatically to make them go faster, at putting uh, sane fault handling uh, mechanisms in place to deal with um, you know, tough distributed systems problems. Mm -hmm. But still, the problem of just understanding what's going on in the network and what your application code is doing as your data moves around is still uh, quite challenging. And I think um, we're sort of leveraging everything that Clojure gives us in, in conjunction with uh, the work we did with Onyx to, to make a good distributed stream processor to sort of give the Clojure experience to everyone uh, via like a unified product that you don't necessarily need to be using Clojure to have. Um, so we're trying to reach a broader audience with that. Nice. That's a, a big goal and, a, and a, an impressive one. I uh, I think that's great. Uh, I guess I should have uh, mentioned just before that. Um, uh, you said we. Uh, is this your company? Yeah. So I am leading a company uh, named Distributed Masonry. Uh, myself, my co-founder Lucas Bradstreet, who has been involved with Onyx for a long time now. <laughs> it's crazy how fast the years fly by, and uh, a few employees working with us. Cool. Cool. I love that name, Distributed Masonry. It's <laughs> impossible and sounds cool at the same time. Um, <laughs> perhaps appropriate for what you're trying to do. I don't know. Um, okay, so uh, so a streaming data platform. So this is uh, this is a product that you'll be or, or you are offering as uh, a service for people to just walk up and, and start using. That's right. It's a, it's a fully hosted cloud platform. And the idea is that we wanted to pick just one thing that Onyx is really good at and make everything about it very easy to use. So you sign up, you uh, create points of data ingestion called topics, which are very similar to Kafka topics. And you can just start pumping your data in through um, HTTP or some tools that we offer. Uh, and then we have a, a way to, to build a data pipeline that will run for you that will effectively turn those data streams you gave us into a set of microservices. So as your data pipelines run on our infrastructure, we, we give you uh, web servers that sit in front of that and a set of endpoints. And so you say, I'd like to launch you know, this, this data pipeline over this event stream. Um, and we will come back and say, OK, here are your endpoints for accessing the data um, as, it we, as we roll it through and maybe sum it up and do aggregations or do some sort of transformations. And so it's, it's very HTTP oriented. And that's, that's what gives us the leverage to not um, be bound to closure only as we are now with Onyx. Right, right. So interesting. So uh, this is Pyroclast is built on Onyx, you said, but it's it's more focused. It's doing one specific uh, kind of uh, data processing. Is that right? That's right. So Onyx is, is really general. It's designed to handle um, a wide variety of problems. And I, I think one thing that it's really good at is doing materialized caching or um, yeah, I think that's probably the best word for it. If, if uh, for new listeners, uh, the the ability to sort of specify a, a query and say um, maybe I have uh, have some transaction events and I want to sum up all the amounts in the the transaction. Mm -hmm. If you did that with a normal database, you would just shove all your data into a table and say select you know star from or whatever yeah. and do a sum across those numbers. But instead, we we sort of invert that. We 
we turn the database inside out, as is the, the popular term, and we, we stream the events over the query rather than um, run the query against the data. And so you can get incremental results when you do that, which is quite a nice feature. Got it, right. So uh, materialized in the sense of materialized views in, in a relational database maybe, but uh, assuming that the data continues to come in and the results uh, continue to, to change as, as it arrives. Exactly. So perhaps also materialized cache, you might call it. Cache, yeah. Okay. So these uh, computations or these uh, aggregations that might be applied, uh, you mentioned one example as, as summing. Um, what kinds of things can you, can you do in that environment? So the main things that we're offering right now are uh, is a, almost a direct mirror of, of Closure Core. And so we think that the, the API that Closure already offers is um, clearly very good at handling a wide variety of ways to manipulate your data. And if you're able to elevate that to just a set of names that happen to mirror Closure Core, so if you do know Closure, you feel very much at home, um, you can use all those things out of the box, as well as a lot of things that we replicated from Java, uh, Java's math library, and a couple of other you know, standard functions that we're offering. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're able, it's able to you know, feel as if you know Closure. Um, because you're using the same names and you're, you're getting roughly the same behavior. Because under the hood, if we say we're doing ZipMap, we are in fact doing Closure Core ZipMap. Um, and then there are, there are kind of a limited number of aggregations you can offer out of the box without having to um, reach into user code land to do things in a more custom manner. Um, but that's, that's really the, the next uh, front of this whole project is allowing um, totally arbitrary code to run in this, which is a much harder challenge. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll come back to that because I'm, I'm curious about that. So, but just from what you've described, all of the, the sequence functions and uh, uh, reduce, map, filter, distinct, and so on, those are, those are the kinds of things that I would find in, uh, in Pyroclast. That's right. Yep. Okay. Um, now, something that, that I immediately uh, think of in that context is that uh, a lot of those uh, are actually higher order functions. They are meant to take uh, other functions as arguments, uh, things like map and filter. I'm, I'm providing my own function uh, to do the mapping and filtering. Uh, how, how does that fit in? Right. In that sense, we're sort of still bounded because uh, you, have, you have the higher order functions, uh, like the, the collection processing ones that we see in Clojure. Mm-hmm. And then we also have the ones um, that do maybe like capitalize, lowercase, uppercase, plus minus, and so you can supply those. Um, and so that's, that's sort of where we're at right now, is we, we have a, a large set of functions. We don't, we don't cover quite everything. Um, to, to do that, you need to have totally arbitrary code execution. Yeah. Um, but you can su- supply you know, a, a, a broad set of functions to use in place. And for most problems, that ends up being quite enough, um, especially for doing uh, streaming ETL, which is another use case that we're actually pretty solid at. Is you, just, you say, I want, to, I want to change the data in this way, use these regular expressions, move this this data structure around, move data up and down the hierarchy, um, you really need a limited set of functions to actually deal with that in a good way. And so it works out okay for the moment. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's certainly uh, useful uh, right away. That's a lot of, uh, certainly a lot of code that I've written uh, often <laughs> enough is yeah. just rearranging and, and uh, cleaning up data to do something interesting with it. Um, that was really it. When we looked at what we were doing, we were saying, how many times are we going to pull out Kafka again and do the same thing? Everyone's yeah. doing this. Can you not make this easier at this point? And I think the answer is yes. 
Interesting. Cool. Um, so, um, I guess let me let me uh, step back and and kind of try to get a little more of the the overall picture. Uh, so you you provide this as a, a service; someone can can sign up for it, um, or will sign up for it, and um, they uh, give you data. They're pushing data into Pyroclast. What uh, so so? How does that that end of it look? Just to start. Right, so it's specifically event-oriented data. We're not we're okay. going in totally unstructured things. Um, usually, you know, we're seeing like JSON maps being pushed in. So something happened at this particular time. The right. fact that it's timestamped is usually pretty important because um, the custom windowing that we provide, which we may want to talk about later, because that's a whole another um, topic, is sort of the ability to roll up over specific time periods. And if you can communicate to us when a particular event happened, not when we received it, but when it really happened, right. we could do much more sophisticated analysis over that. Yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely big. And that certainly describes a lot of uh, data streams uh, that we have are all just, everything's maps, right? It's all just maps oh, yeah. when you come down to it, <laughs> whether it's JSON or XML or Eden, whatever, it's all, it's all maps. Um, so cool. So uh, so we're we're pushing this data in. I, I assume that's just an uh, an HTTP interface, or are there other? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then uh, once I've got it in there, what do I what do I do with it next? What's what's kind of the next step if I'm using uh, Pyroclast? Right. So the the main tool we have for the moment with uh, manipulating your your topic data is. Um, our pipeline designer. So you would log into the web app and say, I'd, I'd like to, to create a new pipeline. Uh, and you'll be dropped into a uh, an editor screen where you, ha you have sort of a, a two-paneled um, view of what's going on. On the left side, you're able to create a set of tasks that execute in sequence. So data is going to flow from the top to the bottom over a, a linear sequence. So want a task A, B, C, right in order. Okay. And you say, um, yeah, maybe change it in this way, change it in that way, and so on. You can add and remove tasks. Um, on, the, on the right side of the screen, you're actually able to uh, pump in sample data and as you type, see the, the way that your data pipeline will behave on that particular um, data, which is really um, the main reason we build Pyroclast. I think if you were just going to build a materialized cache service, that's kind of interesting, but that doesn't really get me out of bed in the morning. Because um, <laughs> I guess at the start of the talk, the, the whole point is we want to make these systems more um, uh, we have a higher ability to reason about them. Yeah. Uh, and if you can you can cut that down to the, the point where you're just typing and watching as it changes, that's a totally new way to do that. And I think that that's a meaningful amount of progress. Yeah, so this is uh, uh, what we saw in the in the demo you did at Closure West, uh, which people should check out. It's, it's definitely cool and it's neat to watch as you're uh, typing in uh, some sample data in one part of the screen, it's updating. Uh, if I'm right here, it's not just the end result, but actually the result at each step, right? Exactly. Yes, the intermediaries are visible. So if you yeah, had functions that are chained together, yeah, yeah. I mean, because that's like what I do using by hand, using the REPL all day, <laughs> is take big chains of expressions and break them down and run smaller pieces until I find the bug or whatever. Um, so that just being able to do that. Even by itself would be would be um, a really a really cool thing. 
Um, so you've got some uh, a sample which you type in, and then you've got uh, you, that helps you build out your pipeline of mm -hmm. uh, functions, which sounds sort of a little bit like the the threading macros in Clojure, thread first and thread last. Right, it's quite similar. Yeah, that's right. Um, or function composition, if you think of it that way, uh, similar thing. Cool. So I I can look at some sample data, I can use that to figure out what my pipeline is going to look uh, to look like, and then what's next? All right. So what we what we typically see is, is users spending a fair amount of time uh, in the simulator uh, trying to get things just so, and that's that's really the way it ought to be. You should be able to to pick off as many defects as possible by putting in lots of sample data, because the goal is to make that as accurate as we can. It's not going to be probably ever completely ironclad, but we can catch yeah. the vast majority of cases. And so after a time of iteration um, and debugging in that in that mode, you'd say, I'd like to launch uh, this pipeline as a deployment. Mm -hmm. And what will happen is that we'll, we'll take your description of what that, that pipeline looks like and turn it into an actual Onyx job. And we'll go ahead and run it on our, our cluster uh, in the cloud. And we'll begin pulling data from your topic um, and pushing it into a state store. And... When you've gone ahead and launched it, and we've we've got everything up. We'll give you those endpoints that I mentioned, and you can just say curl uh, this endpoint with these parameters, and you can see that the data as of this particular time or this particular message offset is is compounded to this state. And so you would build um, other applications or services in your architecture that are going to invoke us as a service. So we're not really a front end for your data. We're sort of um, we're sort of a service to be used. Okay, so this is. Uh, this is uh, something that would provide some uh, portion of the data processing that my application needs, and then I'd uh, use those APIs both to push data into Pyroclast and then pull results back out uh, as they come. Is That's that right? exactly right. Got yeah, it. we have we have some you know minimal dashboarding around what your data looks like, but the point was for, for programmatic access. We want to be a block inside of your architecture and not um, not just a standalone product that you you ship just Pyroclast and that's it. Right, you can do right. a lot more interesting things as, as you become more narrow in what you do. I think. Okay. And so these uh, these endpoints do these correspond to the the steps in the the workflow that you were describing before? They do so. Uh, specifically things that you aggregate, those are points of access where you say, give me the data as it was aggregated at this step. Um, okay. Right. So if I'm computing, a, I don't know, rolling statistics, mean and sum and count and so on, um, there would be a, a, a URL I could hit that would give me uh, what the the latest um, or or a, a stream of those? Uh, what what does that look like when it comes out? Right. So it depends on the aggregate that you use. If you were if you were using a global aggregate which says um, you know, perform this statistic over the entire data set, you would get the latest. Um, but coming back to what we talked about windowing, um, ah, if yes. you said this is this is a window data set, we'd actually be able to slice it up by time and say. Between the hours of 11 a.m. and 12 p.m. on you know, February 12, 2012, there were 50 of these. And then we would be able to do that for every time segment that you've offered. And so the, the really cool superpower is that you can pump in data from like 1975, and we will not conflate it with data that's 
um, is timestamped like right now, uh, we can tell the difference between old data, new data, and data in the future. It's not going to all conflate into one data stream. Okay. And so I don't have to be careful to keep everything in order. Is, is that right? I can, I can push in historical data and live data from just now at the same time? Exactly. It's designed to work in a totally um, unordered fashion, cool. uh, which is nice if you need to do a backfill. You don't have to stop your system and replay data, right. and replay the old stuff and the new stuff. And then, you know, so you just pump it right in and it works. Another thing I've had to deal with on uh, almost <laughs> on a lot of projects, at least, uh, is the, the backloading of, of historical data. Uh, I was just wondering, as you said that, yeah, did anybody have JSON formatted data in 1975? But, um, <laughs> yeah. Probably, they just didn't know it. Um, <laughs> um, cool. So, uh, yeah, so uh, talk about uh, windowing. What does this, uh, what does that mean? Okay, so windowing is, it's not really a new abstraction. It's sort of catching on now. Um, I've actually I spent a long time reading quite a few papers about how windowing came about and where the idea started, and it unsurprisingly goes all the way back to like 1960 um, in the first few papers. Um, yep. Nothing new. <laughs> no, there's never anything new, which is actually kind of comforting because you can always go back and look at what has happened. Right. Um, so uh, in the last I think two years, uh, Google put out a paper uh, named. It has a longer title, but it's the Data Flow paper. Pretty easy to find online. Mm -hmm. uh, and Dataflow is a system, it's a, it's a similar distributed data processing system in Onyx that Google hosts um, that offers primitives uh, that they just call windowing directly. Um, and they, they go through in this paper and talk about why it is necessary to be able to handle um, data streams in an unordered, unbounded fashion. And they make the case that uh, batch processing, which is to, to tabulate over a data set that is finite and static, yeah. It's really a special case of streaming, and windows are the critical abstraction to unlocking that. Okay, um, yeah. Because a global window is really just handling a batch of data. But if you were to say you know, streaming, which is an infinite set of data, you need some way of discretizing the, the stream, and doing it by event timestamps is really the way to get there. Interesting. I, f I feel like I may have seen this paper. It floated across my awareness at some point. I don't know if I actually read it, but you know. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's interesting though, because I, I do remember uh, years and years ago uh, when Google, I don't know, almost when Google first started, they put out their MapReduce uh, paper, which was very, uh, at the time, very batch oriented. And that was seemed to be the, the root of everything they did. So it sounds like they evolved quite a bit uh, in between those two. Yeah, it's, it, the difference is really night and day. And as as far as I know, I don't I don't think they run quite everything on Dataflow yet, but I think they're getting there. And to me, from all the papers they put out, this is um, certainly one of the most comprehensive technologies they have for dealing with large data sets in a way that uh, is able to generalize to the the sorts of problems that they deal with. Cool. Yeah. So I get the basic idea. You've you've got uh, time stamped uh, events coming in. Um, possibly out of order, and essentially what you're doing is is grouping them by some unit of time. Uh, what? Uh, well, I guess first of all, what defines those windows? Are they typically just fixed calendar units like days or hours? So there's uh, there's three kinds of time oriented windows, as, as far as I know, having kind of 
trolled my way through the literature. There's, there's four mm-hmm. kinds of windows. Global, uh, fixed, sliding, and sessions. And fixed and sliding are very similar. And we already talked about global and low-leaf sessions for another time. But um, yeah, a fixed window is to say that I take my event timestamp and I compute um, ranges under which my data will fall into. And a fixed window says my data point is going to fall into exactly one window. And so you can picture blocks being lined up where uh, maybe we'll start like the epic 1970, January mm-hmm. 1st, midnight. Um, and I say I'd like five minute fixed windows. I'll have a window from midnight, January 1st, 1970 um, to 1205 a.m. And then I'll have another window from 12.05 a.m. to 12.10, such that none of those windows actually overlap. I said 12.05 and 12.05 in both windows, but it's really 12.04, 59, Right, um, yeah. The, uh, what's the word? Uh, I forget, but they, they don't overlap. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so that's why they're sometimes called tumbling windows, because you can picture it as a, like a tile, and you pick it up, and then you tumble it over, and so it's sort of just you know flopping like a domino. Um, right, right. You look at you look at the timestamp on your data, and you say, okay, which window for a five minute range does this fall into? And as it turns out, the algorithm to do that efficiently is it's only like it's in Onyx. I think the the entirety of the algorithm is like forty lines at most, and it's mostly comments. Uh, it's a really <laughs> small thing to do, and so you can you can efficiently take data and bucket it into which um, spot it fell into, and and the way that that's done actually uses. Um, a reasonable amount of memory. You don't have to store a window for every single period. Only when data arrives do you actually have to fill that out. So it's sort of like a hash map where you're not, you never think about putting data in every key. So it's the same way you wouldn't put data in every fixed window until you had to. Right. So, I mean, if I have no data, if I didn't have any data until 1970, January 1st, two o'clock in the afternoon, then it wouldn't, there wouldn't be any, anything I need to store there. Exactly. I think when you first look at the problem and how to do that, people start to to devise schemes that would involve using huge amounts of memory to cover that. But yeah, the solution yeah. is actually pretty simple. So uh, we we've divided time up into these discrete chunks, um, and then uh, data comes in. We figure out which uh, chunk of time it belongs to. Where does it go then? Do we do we have to store it? In a in a place uh, allocated so, for that chunk, so Paraclast actually completely handles that for you in a really invisible way. But with Onyx, um, it's able to use uh, a state backend, uh, and so we're actually using uh, an um, an on disk in memory database that is um, able to replay itself to to actually be fault tolerant. Um, but we're, I think we're using RocksDB at the moment to do that, mm-hmm. um, and so that that is also fairly invisible for you, but as you as you build up these um, these these windows, eventually you need to do something with them um, because right. they would just sort of sit in memory otherwise. And so this is the other half of the data flow paper uh, that's called triggering. So for every ah, window, okay. you have a trigger, and a trigger says it, it's it's quite nice how it decouples. So windows are what the data is and when it is. Triggers are where you put the data and you know why you want to do something with it. Okay. So you can say I'd like to trigger every 10 messages every 30 seconds, every megabyte, and you can do anything you want with it. You say, I would like to put it into this database, I'd like to put it on a WebSocket, and so in that sense, it's totally decoupled from the underlying processing framework. Okay, so we'll, there'll be, uh, the, the trigger says what we're going to do, um, 
And it's, is it invoked? Because presumably we can't ever really know when one of these uh, windows is finished because someone might come along and, and give us more data from that period of time. Um, so uh, these run uh, whenever the data in that window changes or, uh, or something else. Right. So that's, that's probably the biggest point of confusion with, um, with, with what I see in Onyx. And I, I'd mm-hmm. imagine the, the data flow people see it a lot. Say, How do I know when my window is finished? And the answer is you can never know. The whole premise yeah. of the paper yeah. is we have, we have mobile applications. Your, your phone goes into the jungle for two weeks. It collects data. You come out of the jungle. <laughs> and all of a sudden, we have this new data. We, we never knew. We could yeah. never have known. Um, and so you could, you could say, I, I, I hit this cap, and now I'm calling it finished, regardless of whether you've given me your data or not. Uh, but that's sort of a side note. Um, and so there's there's a third element to all this. I guess, as I continue to talk, I'm sort of unpacking the paper in my yeah, head. Yeah, yeah, this, this is cool. Um, the third piece is called a refinement mode. And every window has a refinement mode. You could say it's it's accumulating or it's discarding. You could implement others, but these are really the main ones. Mm-hmm. Um, when, it, when a trigger fires and says, all right, we're going to do something with that data, if your your trigger is accumulating, you're actually... Um, maintaining that data in place. You're not throwing it out um, because you can picture windows accreting very, to very large values. And in that case, yeah. you would not want to that. You want to say, I have, a, I have a discarding window. And so your, your trigger has a contract with that window to say, I am safely moving that data elsewhere. I'm, we're going to remove it from the window. Um, and I'm presuming you have the, the mechanisms in place to be able to sort of merge new state and novelty from the windows into uh, whatever permanent storage you've decided to put this on. Yeah. And that, that's where a lot of problems come in uh, because that is application design. We get a lot of questions about how you do that, and it, it, it depends. Um, how do I not lose data? How do I, how do I don't duplicate data? All right. of that depends. Yeah. yeah, another, that's, again, one of those things I'm, I'm used <laughs> to seeing and, and hearing on, on uh, consulting projects that we do is... Uh, yeah, how do we move the data from one place to another and make sure it gets there safely? Turns right. out to be a lot more complicated than than one would initially think. I think it's because we never, I mean, not never, we rarely do the same thing twice. There's always some sort of variation. Yeah. Um, I mean, as a consultant, I'm sure that that lesson is really impounded into you. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've seen every every possible variation because we never know what technology or uh infrastructure we're going to be be working with um right so so uh, getting getting back into uh pyroclast here so uh it's is it doing all of these things is it doing the the windowing and the uh the storing, I guess, of of the results of the computations. It is all of that is is invisible to you, which because we're able to constrain the problem and say we're just doing materialized caching over right. event data. We're able to figure out exactly what is the best way to do that and handle the failures. Um, the nice thing about accessing your your state through an HTTP interface is that if we have a problem, um, maybe your cluster goes down for a minute or something you don't have to worry about what's happening to the underlying storage. We're actually doing a lot of things under the hood to make sure that your data is as fresh as possible and at least to give you warnings if we're sort of running behind. Yeah, um, okay. The, the other tricky thing is that if you have, 
you have introduced a bug in your data pipeline. I mean, you're processing your data as a stream. Yeah. Um, and maybe you say, I have a bug. Okay, I'd like to actually replay that entire stream. Um, yeah, this is this is going to be my, my next question is uh, <laughs> when, when oh, you ahead. do it wrong and you've right. just created 12 gigabytes of bad <laughs> data, um, how do you fix it? Right. So this, I think this is probably the hardest part of working with event streams in general. Um, Even if it's a bug, if it's not a bug, maybe you just want to do an upgrade. You want to do a code upgrade. You want to upgrade uh, something on your cluster, anything that requires some downtime. Um, Because the the traditional approach is to just replay your entire data stream. And that is fine. That, That will work. That delivers on the promise of functional purity. You're going to get the same answer if you play the same data stream. You still have problems with staleness. If you replay your data stream and you present that intermediary state back to consuming applications, they need to either be able to, they need to deal with the fact that that state may not, may be older than state they have already seen. And for most applications, oh, that's actually no go. Yeah, um, you're effectively going back in time because you started at the beginning again. Exactly. Uh, we, we've done this enough that we've kind of figured out the tricks with when you do need to do a full replay and when you don't. Um, and we sort of give you sort of a diffing interface. This is new and hasn't really been seen yet, but we give you a side-by-side view of this was your old computation, this is your new one, here's our recommendation. You could replay your entire data stream. It will take approximately this long. Yeah. Uh, this is what would happen if you you picked up from this point. Um, maybe you're going to have some variations in your data, but if you're okay with that, that's fine. Yeah, um, yeah. I think the last thing that you can do, which is we haven't quite gotten to yet, but I think we're close now, is the ability to uh, transparently run two of your pipelines at the same time. We'll keep the old one going, and we'll launch your new one, and we won't switch over um, your your microservice to point to the new state until the new one has caught up. Oh, and so yeah. It's zero downtime. Yeah, that's great. Cool. I mean, that sounds definitely, I mean, if you've solved that problem, hey, sign me up. I, I want to use it because <laughs> I've had to deal with that uh, uh, many times before. Um, perhaps a, a related question. Um, I've Another problem that I've seen a lot with kind of big data systems in general, whether it's a batch system like Hadoop or something else, is uh, you don't really know what all the data looks like until you actually run all the data through your system. And often there are edge cases or things that don't work uh, that you never knew about, um, uh, that you didn't think to to test when you were developing the system. Uh, and I remember back in the early battle days of Hadoop, you basically had to start over because your entire job would fail if there was one exception thrown anywhere. Um, And that, that kind of sucked. So, so it sounds like you're, you're probably doing things to address that as well. Yeah, that was a tricky problem. Um, I've, I've too had, had those nightmares where you go away for lunch and you expect everything to run fine. And then you have to rerun the, the entire thing again. And it's, uh, it just kills your work day. Um, so because we're a, a streaming, we're mainly a streaming product here, we'll actually, uh, take the exception and then reroute it to a dead letter queue for you to deal with later okay. and we'll allow you to continue processing. So then you could you can look at your stack of exceptions and say, okay, at this timestamp, this exception occurred with this piece of data. And you can say, I'd like to actually, um, teleport myself back into the simulator. So we'll give you the originating oh, message. Nice. 
And then you can figure out why that happened and then relaunch and use those mechanisms that I talked about to replay as of the, the time that we saw the failure instead of the minimal replay case. Fantastic. That is sounds really ideal. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been quite a bit of work, but I think if the more we narrow this, the happier we are because we're able to do one thing very, very well, and, and people relate to that better. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. So uh, you've got these uh, pipelines, and you can uh, work with this uh, uh, editor, and, and it sounds like a debugger. It, it acts as also as well, the, the simulator, um, which I'll, I'll come back to uh, in a sec. Um, and these are these data pipelines, uh, they don't branch, do they? They're, they're doing a, a, basically a fixed set of, of things. That's right. We used to support, in, in very early, early versions of this, um, branched workflow. So you can take an input, branch onto mm -hmm. any number of subtasks. And as it turned out, that was it wasn't un unintuitive to understand, but it made other parts of the product very difficult to design, um, particularly from a, a visualization standpoint. Certainly, yeah. And you're able to actually get the same power if you have, you know, just a, a linear workflow, step A, step B, step C, and you have the ability to say, okay, I'd like to take this intermediary task and then tap its output to a new topic. You get uh, really yeah. the same power. Right, um, okay. Yeah, and so you just it, branch it just, to a different workflow and then that becomes a new service it's, it's in of itself service. yeah okay that makes sense yeah that, that was I, I think that that was a major pivotal moment for us because we were able to reduce so much complexity elsewhere it wasn't obvious that that was what was hurting us but yeah, um, yeah. yep oh i i know another uh question that i was thinking of um you mentioned uh kafka as a comparison which i thought was really interesting because I've certainly read about people doing things like this with Kafka in, in their own infrastructure. They have a bunch of uh, Kafka, for anyone who's uh, not uh, seen or, or heard of it, is, uh, uh, how would you describe it? Uh, a uh, big, distributed commit log. <laughs> yeah, a big distributed commit log that uh, you can push a lot of data through really fast. Um and it's designed to work with distributed systems. So you have uh, clusters writing to or consuming from uh, a stream. Um, so now, uh, what was my question? I was thinking of it. Um, <laughs> oh, right, I know. So often uh, people build these things with, with Kafka or other similar systems uh, where they have a stream of data coming in and then they have various consumers that are reading you know, like raw clickstream data or something and doing some computations, some aggregations on it, and then writing that out to another stream, which then gets uh, read by another part uh, or another application. And is so my question was, with Pyroclast, is that something I can do? Uh, if I have a stream of data coming in, uh, can I get a stream of data coming out? You can. We're we're sort of in experimental phase with this because the as it turns out the best way to access that data is, is sort of unclear depending on the use case. Yeah. Um, we're we're kind of down to either allowing a direct Kafka consumer to, to tap into the stream or just a bulk S3 download. We may just siphon data off into S3 invisibly so you don't really know when it's in Kafka for us or when it's in S3. And okay. you can just get it in a bucket. And I think 
that ends up being a really flexible route because a lot of databases or Kafka itself can bootstrap itself off of S3. Right, um, right. So that would sort of be like every, I don't know, five minutes or every hour, there's a new file that shows up and that's got all of the, the data that I processed in that, right. that span and, of time. And the, the nice thing with it is that that would all be invisible to you. The way that we load and unload data from Kafka um, would, would just be completely, um, you know, you'd be unaware of that until you requested the data, in which case we'd materialize it in a particular form. Um, so I'm excited to roll that out eventually, but it's it's one of those things where you, you can do it 10 different ways, but you yeah. really only pick one. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, it's the usual uh, trade-off. You want to make something that's uh, simple enough that you can walk up to it and figure out how to use it, but um, you also want to do everything because everything would be cool. Um, exactly. And, and on that note, I, I thought of this earlier, this is a good time to bring it up. Is yeah. One of the things that I think would be really cool, but it's probably a, a little bit of an overreach, uh, is to introduce closure spec into the, the simulator, oh, yeah. as well as, as generative testing to say, these, this set of tasks hold these properties. I'm going to run a data set through you. Tell me if there's any invariants here that are violated. I think that would just be the coolest thing ever, but I'm not sure... Yeah, what's yeah. the best way to deliver that in a way to make everyone understand that? Because that's a that's a very functional programming thing at the moment. Yeah, and spec is still very new. I mean, technically, it's it's still alpha, so uh, I'm not. <laughs> right. We we can't even be sure that it's reached its final form. Um, but it, it's definitely interesting. I think it reminds me of uh, someone. I, I wish I could remember the name, but someone uh, did a demonstration. Uh, and, and blogged about it or posted code online of uh, generating, uh, no, not uh, generating specs. In, inferring from specs data. from data. Yes. I just saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which just seems really cool because it answers that question. Like the, the case I brought up earlier where you don't know what all the data looks like. You don't know what the edge cases are. It can help you figure that out and just say, oh, well, in 99 out of 100 records this field is a string but in this other one it's an integer and you just have to deal with that i think i think it was called spec provider if i remember right and okay yeah, yeah. that that's fascinating you can imagine that being a service where you pump your data to it and it says here's my best guess of what your schema should look like oh yeah that'd uh, be awesome free startup idea <laughs> <laughs> we'll never run out of those i'm sure <laughs> so i mean that, that's an interesting question as well sort of talking about uh the decisions you made going from uh, Onyx, which uh, was open source, uh, I believe. Is that right? Yep, that's yeah. right. Um, uh, the sort of progression you made from working on an open source project, which uh, you've been doing for uh, several years now, right? That's right, about about three years on Onyx. Okay, cool. Um, uh, and then taking that and building a product on top of it. Uh, wh what's that been been like for you? It's been really the, the coolest thing ever. I'm just stunned that I wake up every day, and it has succeeded to the point that it has. I mean, we're not we're not blowing it up with major VC funds, but we've been working on a project for uh, of high complexity for a very long time, and the team has stayed together, and the community has grown. Uh, and that that's what gets me out of bed in the morning: the fact that we're able to make this kind of progress, and that it's a whole lot of fun to do. Because now you're you're taking applications that before Onyx existed in my opinion, were pretty much intractable. They're possible, but they're a huge pain in the neck. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the flexibility that Onyx gives you makes that, hopefully, in my opinion, very easy to do. So it's it's been wonderful. Um, Onyx, 
is will continue to thrive and I'm still involved with it and we're still growing it because power class depends on Onyx. But managing the two communities is really night and day because you have the open source community where we want to share and we want to um, really work together as closely as we can. And then on the commercial side, uh, I'm still learning what I'm doing, but it's very different. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely different. Um, well, that's great. I mean, I think that's uh, it's it's really cool when people can take uh, the sort of shared infrastructure and knowledge that builds up in uh, open source projects and then apply it into uh, useful services that that deliver deliver value. Yeah, it's been nice because um, I'm I'm really a hardcore distributed systems engineer at heart, clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was in the beginning, it was sort of unclear what Pyroclass should be. We had so many options because you have this super flexible event streaming platform. How do you want to, what domain do you want to go into? And, yeah. and eventually settling on, well, why don't we, why don't we do event streaming as a service? I mean, we had looked at doing different domains before, but being in the technical, um, domain is really where everyone feels most comfortable. And I yeah, think we can yeah. deliver the biggest impact. And that's, it's actually, that's an interesting approach you took because of course, uh, there are, I think, uh, a number of companies uh, that are built around uh, essentially supporting an open source product. The the code itself is open source, but then they offer, uh, you know, premium support or uh, a, a pro version of some kind, um, and that's that's their business model. But you've actually done something different here. You've uh, You've built a new thing that leverages uh, the the open source product in a way that uh, basically relieves a lot of the pressure that people might have if they wanted to use uh, Onyx, for example, to learn about how it works and how to deploy it and how to administer it and so on. That's right. And at the end of the day, I think that's it's a whole lot more satisfying of an outcome. We had, we had looked at doing the the sort of commercial support for open source, and it's it's really tough. Uh, oh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but uh, I don't know how long open source is really going to last over the next twenty years. There's a lot of free labor going into it, and it's fine. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I don't regret anything I've done, but I don't know if the economics are really going to sustain it. If people will continue to find building those things and, and sharing them to be worth it. That's, that's interesting because, I mean, I agree with you. It is definitely tough, uh, and I've seen uh, uh, I've seen companies that, that seem to be succeeding with it, but I've also seen a lot of companies that uh, try it for a few years and, and don't manage to make it work. So uh, it's, it's a challenge. I think it's still unclear on what the factors are to have success there. It may just be that you're willing to work super, super hard to make it work no matter, no matter what, uh, which is kind of the, the case for us. Yeah. But, there's there's a lot of other factors in play. Like what what is specifically have you built? Because distributed streaming is is really hot right now. There's a lot of problems with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you could p- easily we could have easily picked another thing that would just totally flopped if we uh, we had done the open source into into commercial model. Yeah, you never know. Um, and I think you're definitely in a good area because this is this is certainly a problem that that a lot of people have, um, which uh, sort of in in a similar uh, area. There's a uh, a question I wanted to ask, which is, um, uh, what uh, influenced your decision to make a uh, a cloud-hosted service 
rather than a software product? Um, or are you maybe planning to do the enterprise version that people can run on their own hardware if, if that's what they want to do? I think it's inevitable that, inevitable that we end up with both. Um, but uh, the more times that you, you sort of give people the ability to run their own hardware, you sort of change your business because now your support model has to account for previous versions. Right. You can't force everyone to be on the same version. And yeah, I, it's true. You kind of have to have a support staff that's a lot a lot broader to, yeah. to be able to handle those things. And I think when you're small, uh, it makes the most sense to be able to just have one one version that everyone's on with a central control panel to monitor right. the entire world. Um, yeah. I mean, that's certainly something we encounter with uh, Datomic is that there are all kinds of different ways people might have uh, deployed it or be running it. And uh, with, if we're trying to support that, we have to uh, learn about all sorts of different databases and operating systems and other sort of environmental things. Have you, have you developed a strategy for, I mean, you encounter that case all the time, as you said, with Datomic running in different environments. Do you, do you have a set of tools that you deploy to uh, analyze what's going on very quickly, or is it, in your experience, a more manual rote process? Well, I think it depends. Um, you know, if we, if we can, uh, we, if we're working with a customer that has a particular problem, um, you know, the first thing we'll ask for is uh, the logs and the metrics. Um, and so uh, both the Datomic uh, transactor and the peer uh, have their their built-in metrics metrics reporting, and I think we've just learned to uh, analyze those and recognize common patterns to say, okay, well, here this looks like your storage doesn't have enough uh, bandwidth, or here it looks like you don't have enough memory, and and so we can we can diagnose a lot of things that way. Um, but uh, on occasion, I think we've actually had people ship us a, a backup of their database. Um, uh, especially, I think, you know, on the rare occasions when there's been an actual uh, uh, storage problem or some data has been, been corrupted that Datomic relied on, uh, we've sometimes been able to uh, help clients repair it. Um, but, uh, of course, uh, many uh, organizations using Datomic, like financial institutions and so off and so on, you know, <laughs> yes. that's absolutely not an option. They're not right. ever going to to give us a, a copy of their data. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge. It, it ends up being uh, a back and forth of sort of often we have consultants uh, on the ground working with uh, those uh, customers, especially large enterprise clients. Um, and I think uh, it it's, ends up being essentially, a, uh, unfortunately, a much slower debugging cycle where uh, we get some information uh, that we or some behavior that we observe in the client system uh, as a consultant. And then we'll go back to the Datomic uh, product team at Cognitech and say, hey, we're seeing this. Do you have any idea why that might happen? And they scratch their heads for a while and then run uh, run simulations often to try to reproduce uh, certain behaviors, especially when it comes to things like provisioning and capacity, which which tends to be mm. where people have the most problems. Um, 
but uh, we've also had people uh, run experiments on our behalf. So we'll say, okay, we have uh, a hypothesis, you know, go to Stu Holloway's uh, debugging talk from uh, last year or the year before. We, mm -hmm. we make a hypothesis and then we design an experiment uh, and we'll give people, you know, here's some code or here's what you need to do to run this experiment and this will validate or disprove our hypothesis and then we can tell you what to do next. Um, and so, you know, that might take longer than it would take if we were physically sitting there next to the system that we're trying to debug, but it might not. You know, we might have to do the same experiments even if we had full access to the environment where everything was running. I think it's, it's a good example of another problem that is kind of ripe for progress. It's not obvious how to do it, but it's still clearly very manual and difficult, not just with Datomic, but for any kind of system that you kind of deployed on someone else's behalf. Yeah, the, the the sort of hands debugging at arm's length is is quite a challenge. I remember one project years ago. This is quite a few years ago when I first started at uh, Relevance, as it was known then. Uh, at one point, we were on a phone call with one of the project managers and trying to debug something about their system. And the product manager was sitting there at a terminal talking to us on the phone and we were telling her what to type and she was reading back <laughs> what came out. Uh, oh. That was not a normal situation even even then, but um, yeah. you know, these, these things happen. For sure. Well, this is all, uh, this is all really cool. Um, I assume, uh, is there a place where people can go to learn more about uh, Pyroclast and or Onyx? There is. You can go to pyroclast.io and uh, sign up for, um, to, for our trial account, and we'll, uh, we'll hook you up as soon as possible. Uh, and if you want to learn about Onyx, um, Clojure and Slack, is, there's tons of us in there. Uh, onyxplatform.org to learn more or the GitHub account. Um, tons and tons of documentation that will provide endless entertainment and reading. <laughs> yeah. I remember... Uh, Way back in, uh, or a couple of years ago when you were last on the show, Craig remarked on the quality of the Onyx documentation, and I was looking over some of it yesterday, and I agree, it is, and I'm sure it's gotten better, but it is, uh, it's quite extensive, and really, what I like about it, actually, is it gets into the motivations of not just how it works, but why something is designed the way it is, Um which I think is is really critical to understanding how to use a, a large, complex tool like that. Yeah, I think I think one thing that is helpful to do when you're writing documentation is to have a checklist of each of the facets of what you're doing, and and the motivation is something that should always be present in yeah. uh, in your writing. Um, what else? Uh, so yeah, one I guess one last question uh, I wanted to ask since you've said you're you're really interested in distributed systems and you've been working on this for uh, several years now. Uh, what do you think has changed about that uh, overall ecosystem in the industry or, or what do you think uh, is, is different now from, from when you started? Um, I mean, I'm still fairly young, so I think only like maybe six years of seriously working on this stuff isn't a long enough time to, to notice uh, a, a lot of changes, but I think at least well, that's forever in computer years, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. I, 
I think one of the biggest things that enabled closure was the ability to have persistent data structures and to have good enough hardware for that. And being able to design large-scale architectures that sort of mimic that um, is is sort of pivotal. As hardware changes, it's important to note what's happening to network speeds, the cost of storage, yeah. um, the, the amount of bandwidth that you have. Uh, if to, to think about those things and the way you're designing, because, I mean, they don't, they don't change overnight. They change somewhat rapidly, but it, it's important to keep in mind what what are your actual constraints when your program is going to run on a cluster for real. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I think those things are the biggest factors that change. Absolutely. Yeah. And I remember, again, back when Hadoop first came out, it was, I, I think the Hadoop paper was pretty clear that it was specifically to designed to utilize a large number of slow disks because yes. that was the constraint that they were living with when, when it was developed. Um, uh, well, cool. Um, so uh, we're getting uh, close on to the end of our time here, but I want to ask uh, if there's anything else that you wanted to mention or would like to talk about. I think we covered it. This was this is a great uh, great talk. We really unpacked a lot of things that I'm working on right now. It's great. Cool, great. Well, I mean, this has been uh, fascinating for me. I will uh, look forward to uh, playing with uh, uh, Onyx and or uh, Pyroclass sometime soon. And uh, we have our final question, which we put to uh, all of our guests before we go. Uh, do you have some advice for us? Anything uh, at all? Um, I would say if you're, you're going to do something new and something big, I get I get asked this question a lot. What do you What do you need to do to prepare if you're going to do something novel or mm -hmm. something that you find kind of ambitious? I would say read a lot, like mm -hmm. a, a real lot, like more than you think is a lot. Um, <laughs> I think the worst thing that you can do is start down a path and replicate the results and mistakes that were made 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, so if you can take the time to uh, read kind of rigorous academic papers and sort of trace back the things you want to work on probably back to the 60s and then yep. work your way forwards it's going to take a long time but it's it's really worth it because that can change the way that you understand what you're building and what the trade-offs are yeah well that's uh uh I, I would say familiar but still very good advice uh for for <laughs> us here um well thank you uh this has been uh, as i said a fascinating talk and uh, I'm sure we'll be uh, hearing lots more about you uh, in the coming weeks and months. Thanks for having me. And thank you to Mike for taking the time today. And thank you to everyone out there for listening. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognacast. The Cognacast is brought to you by Cognitech. We are a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technology effectively and humanely. We are here to help you build better futures. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at, at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, 
Cognitech.com slash Cognacast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognacast or emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. This week, our guest was Michael Dragalis, and you can find Michael on Twitter at, at Michael Dragalis. That's at sign M-I-C-H-A-E-L-D-R-O-G-A-L-I-S. Our host this week was Stuart Sierra. Stuart is at Stuart Sierra on Twitter. That's at S-T-U-A-R-T-S-I-E-R-R-A. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production is by Russ Olson, Joe Smith, and Jarrett Binford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>